So the genre has always been looked upon as something that appeals to low tastes. And it's true um, that in a lot of cases it does appeal to low tastes, including my own, you know. But it's also been an extremely adaptable genre so that I think that people come to it and it serves as a kind of a mirror for anxieties at any particular time in in a culture so that these things have a tendency to come uh, and either be novels that are popular like Rosemary's Baby or movies like The Invasion of the Body Snatchers and they're kind of you know not always sneered at by the critics but there's a kind of dismissive attitude about it, and then some time goes by, and people say, now, wait a minute, that invasion of the body snatchers was actually about um, maybe the paranoia of, uh, that people had about communism back in the 50s and Eugene McCarthy and that kind of thing, or, or an I-11 comes along and writes The Step of Wives, and mm-hmm. it's a popular bestseller, and then a few years later, people say, now, wait a minute, is this actually about feminism? You know, there's that kind of thing where it serves as a, it has a kind of an allegorical feel to it. So it's, and we don't always know that we're doing it at the time that we're doing it. We're awesome. in. Welcome back to the Liquid Flannel Podcast from Arlington, Texas. I'm Matthew Hodges, joined by my excellent comrade and co-host in Omaha, Nebraska, Brendan Williams. Brendan, dude, the last episode, our D&D game, The Haunted House, was amazing. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. Uh, it's just as much fun to edit, I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't actually started that part, but that'll be out by the time you're hearing this episode. On this episode, however, we're joined by... The Spooktober continues. Yes, that's right. The the last in our installments of Spooktober, hopefully coming to you right before Halloween. We have a new friend of the show, the Lit Crit Guy from the north of England, John. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the pod. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, talking about the, the spookiest and funnest time of year. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, just delighted to be here. Yeah, what's we, the what's the Halloween scene like in uh, in your part of the world? Uh, has it been fully Americanized? <laughs> thankfully, that kind of cultural imperialism has not completely taken over the UK just yet. <laughs> but it's going to happen in like the next, I don't know, within five years. It's going to be as just a bigger deal and just as uh, corporate and capitalistic as it is in the states. <laughs> And and fun though. I mean, this is this is one holiday that I don't mind that they sell a million different products for because I think the the spookier the better. The more the more festive people want to get for Halloween, uh, I, I'm never going to complain about that. You know, I'm I'm totally on board with it as long as the uh, you know as long as we can keep some of the kind of distinctive uh, Britishness about it and not turn it into the. Because it's quite a big competition thing, right? In the States, who has the best Halloween house? Who has the best, sure. you know, I think maybe we could try and just skirt that and and get the, get it, turn it into like a big seasonal landmark. Now, can you, can you tell our listeners what the proper pronunciation is of the word that's spelled 
S A M H A I N. Uh, I can I can tell him my pronunciation of it. <laughs> Prepare to get well, ang- what's angry, that? angry, poorly spelled letters from a lot of people. Uh, Samhain. <laughs> okay, all right. I I think I think that's wrong. I think we're gonna have to cut this off. Yeah. Okay. Fair we, enough. <laughs> We were we were we were bringing you on to bring some some proper you know uh, like old world pronunciation of this then word. Man, <laughs> you have misjudged me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so happy to have you with us for our last installment in our Spooktober episodes, and uh, listeners who have been following us this month know that we've been talking a lot about uh, legend and mythology horror movies and that's why we're so glad to have the lit crit guy on because this is right in your wheelhouse uh yeah absolutely for those uh of your listeners who maybe don't know um i am an academic who spends most of my time researching uh on the gothic and horror Uh, a spookologist that is the formal title (laughs) that is the formal title (laughs) it's uh it's pretty cool uh so i'm writing a book on uh, the relationship between marxism and uh, the gothic uh from around the 1850s all the way up to the present so very excited to be here yeah well and i want to jump right in then um one of the topics that keeps coming up as we're discussing these things is how well on our horror movies episode, we discussed explicitly how horror is such a remakeable genre yeah. because a good horror story is always going to be one that reflects the society in which it was created, mm-hmm. which means you can you can do uh, you can do a Dawn of the Dead in the 1970s and then remake it in the 2000s and have them be similar in form, but very different in message. Yeah, and totally. I mean, I think go for it. No, no, no. Go, 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 man. You sounded like you were building up for a question. Uh, <laughs> no, not not really. Just kind of throwing out prompts. But yeah, I, I think I think that's a really interesting thing to explore. And especially with somebody who lives in the UK and not in America, I'd like to know your thoughts on um, the way horror has taken different shapes, given that we live in very intertwined but also still culturally distinct uh societies uh yeah totally i mean one of the things that kind of immediately jumps to mind is the way that history plays a huge part in this right so the uk is full of kind of myths and legends and folklore about it's really regionally specific as well Um, Mm -hmm. and that often goes back sort of like thousands of years and one of the uh Kind of crucial things about the United States is that there isn't that same depth of historical uh, resonance, and there is simply because the country just hasn't sort of existed for long enough to build up that kind of accretion of myth and legend. Right. Uh, aside from although, aside from the kind there, of appropriation of it, you know. Yeah, there are a lot of haunted Native American burial grounds around. Though. <laughs> yeah, for for kind of <laughs> obvious and terrible reasons. Um, <laughs> That's 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 an important point and maybe worth coming back to. But like one of the things about kind of UK and European horror is the way that it is kind of connected to a long historical record. And if anything, one of the things that's really interesting about uh, especially contemporary American horror is its strange and kind of conflicted relationship to history. Because it used to be like, I mean, in the UK, the kind of classic ghost story is 
oh, you shouldn't you shouldn't go down to the abandoned castle because there's something weird living there for the last six and a half thousand years. Right. But the thing about the U.S. is like, especially in terms of like the huge growth of urban conurbations and suburbia is that there is no history. There is no kind of deep connection to a place. It's all of this kind of like weird depthlessness um, that is genuinely quite horrifying when you confront it because it kind of emerges in uh, random acts of sporadic violence. Oral. Yeah. I, Sorry. Go on. I I I think that's right, and uh, it and it makes sense given what we see in the news every day. I mean, we're a we're a country of. Uh, disproportionate, you know, mass shootings and strange, uh, you know, even <clears throat> even in uh, like prohibition folklore or going back to the Civil War, it's a lot of our horror centers around the the hum- the inhumanity of man or the monster within sort yeah, of things totally. because we don't have that sort of place based horror. Um, I, I remember. Uh, we we took a my family took a trip through the UK uh, when I was in I, w- I want to say uh, seventh grade or something so around uh, the age of thirteen mm-hmm. and one thing that really struck me was how much uh, the British delight in the their gory histories <laughs> that 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 people who you know were you know hanged for you know horrible crimes have become local folk legends and there are pubs named after them yeah absolutely. and you know sometimes statuary and things like that yeah it's a kind of reassurance thing as well you know when you go ah back here in like 1612 these guys were burned alive or whatever right but in the states because it's i mean some of the earliest american horror is frontier horror right when you leave the bounds of whatever colonial settlement that the that, that people found place in, and you go out into nature, away from kind of history and the anchoring, meaning-giving uh, idea of human society, you end up in very kind of dangerous territory. Um, right. And, and that's kind of like a, a hallmark of American horror, in my opinion. I, I think you're right. There's a there's an interesting overlap uh, between that and the American environmental ethic, mm. where for so much of our history, the wilderness was terrifying. The only thing out there is bears and giant birds that will carry your children away yep. and, you know, the native savages that can lurk around in the shadows and things like that. Yeah. Totally. Um, so, and if so you spend it, it, too much time out there you know, dangerous and strange things start to happen to you. Right. And they, that's the roots of something like hillbilly horror that was really big in like the 70s and 80s. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre has a lot more in common with, uh, I just recently rewatched The Witch. Yeah. Um, than I think most people would, would think on, on first glance. Yeah, totally, totally. And uh, something like The Hills Have Eyes as well is another great example you know, once you leave um, civility, once you leave the kind of settlement, wherever you might kind of locate that, once you get out into nature, you find that what comes out is the basic inhumanity of people rather than uh, in Europe and, and the UK. What's often the fact is like history is so so full of violence and so full of the kind of unquiet dead that, you know, you shouldn't go down to the to the old ruin that we all kind of keep an eye on. 
because right because that's when that's when shit starts going down. <laughs> yeah, or or don't trust the 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 count who came over from from the continent and has some <laughs> has some strange nocturnal habits and some weird ideas about buying London property. You know, that's, that's <laughs> right. another big concern. <laughs> uh, there's there's one point that I was hoping we could cover. I don't know if anyone else was a fan of the the cracked.com uh, video series After Hours, which was the four people sitting around and talking about pop culture. I, I really enjoyed that one. And there's one episode where they're sitting around a campfire and they're talking about horror stories. And again, in this sense of the way horror reflects the uh, the society that's brought up in. And they point out that there's an interesting uh, dichotomy also between uh, America and Britain, where a lot of Britain's horror stories take place in cities, mm-hmm. and very few American ones do. All of ours are, like we said, either in the wilderness or they're in the suburbs, uh, that, that that shallow culture that can just be a backdrop for a thing. Uh, and I, I wonder what you have to say about that. Well, I mean, if you look again, take a, this is this is why I think a Marxist approach to horror is really important because Marxism emphasizes the progress and movement of history. So if you look at kind of the history of the UK, cities are relatively speaking a pretty new kind of creation of of capitalism, and that's something that emerges. You know, they kind of hit a heyday. In, in the last, I don't know, maybe the last uh, three, four hundred and fifty years, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, like, in the long run of, like, in the very long run of humans living in the UK, that's not the kind of norm. But from the very beginning, you know, uh, America was a kind of colonial, colonizing force. So, like, large groups of people were relatively safe. Uh, that's where you kind of banded together to you know, uh, exist and to survive. Hmm. Whereas cities are, I mean, you, you read some of the 19th century novelists who wrote about the growth of cities. You read someone like Engels and his condition of the working class in England. And you, and you see that like, this was a massive seismic change in how people lived. And it was genuinely horrific. It's not something that you see in America until, uh, you have somebody like Upton Sinclair writing in the 1920s and 30s about what was yeah. like to work in factories. I was just going to say, it's it's shocking to me that we don't have uh, any kind of uh, big horror franchise that's really just based around the jungle. Oh, I mean, I think it it's basically a horror film, like, waiting to happen, I think. One of the ch- yeah. chapters in the book that I'm writing is about the phenomenology of factory capitalism in the early 20th century in America. It draws very heavily off, off writers like Upton Sinclair, who saw what was happening to working class people uh, as, as, as horrific. You know, that's what people went through just because they had to make a subsistence wage uh, is, is monstrous. Yeah, and it and it created such inhumane conditions. I mean, in the UK, you had, uh, you know, Jack the Ripper stalking the the Victorian streets, and everything is covered in soot. And I I remember yeah. reading a story when I was a kid about how the the workers who worked in the match factories 
glowed in the dark as they walked home because of the phosphor in the the materials that they were working with so yeah. you yeah, literally totally. had like living ghosts wandering these sooty cramped back alleys i mean phosphorus is in, is usually corrosive as well so you had a condition mm-hmm. that was that was called fossy jaw which is where the phosphorus eats away at your teeth and your jawbone so jesus it's it's fucking horrible uh but I'm picturing one of those uh, like meth, not even once yeah. uh, advertisements, <laughs> except it's it's for like working in a match factory, not mm-hmm. even once. Not even. Yeah, once. it's so crazy that they have this rich history that they could draw from, but instead they decide, oh, you know, that's a little too real. Um, maybe we'll just <laughs> do like another tale about you know crazy zombie hillbillies or like maybe space aliens or something like, right yeah let's let's not think too deeply about the horrors you know of the society that we've actually created let's let's get pretty extreme and just so that you can have your horror be escapism you know that's yeah that's the american dream yeah. well jesus i i just watched uh I, I watched the first purge the other night which that's a really awkwardly titled movie because mm. i don't mean the movie that was first in the purge franchise <laughs> yeah. i mean the it's one like that's titled four, the first one yeah, yeah right um and just how on the nose it is i was live tweeting about the live tweeting about it the other night and there's literally a scene where a bunch of brown people get gunned down by an unmanned aerial drone, you know? And and I was going like, even for this movie, that's pretty on the nose. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated weirdly by the purge uh, franchise um, because it's in a way it's trapped by its sort of liberal politics. Uh, because, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, a while ago, I, t- I, I'm, I'm writing the, the, one of the final chapters in this book that I'm working on about, Marxism and horror. It's going to be a kind of case study of Blum of Blumhouse Productions, who are behind the Purge franchise. And I was looking over my notes and I just wrote like Jason Blum hates Reed Lennon. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm totally on board with this notion of a kind of uh, left critique of America through the violence of horror. But I'm like, if you're going to do that, like, don't be a kind of liberal on the nose. Oh, isn't this terrible? Like, commit. If you really right. want, if you really want to critique the conditions of American capitalism in the contemporary, like you got to commit. Uh, there should be a call for like people's war. There should be like where is the vanguard that you're going to try and arm and organize? It shouldn't just be this kind of moralistic hand wringing of going, oh, what's happened to America? No, absolutely. <laughs> uh, one of the things that most frustrated me about the first purge was even their their terrible eugenicist uh, scientist ends up being sort of redeemed through the story because she's like, oh, this this wasn't what I had planned. Like, what what's the message of this film at this point? Like, if you're trying to say that the government is executing policies that that have a an almost genocidal uh, effect on on the poor uh, in real life, then in the movie, your government people need to be explicit genocidists. Yeah, I mean, there, there should be there should be this. If you accept that horror is a reflection of the cultural conditions which create it, which I totally think that it is, then I think you kind of have to lean into the necessity of a political analysis. Um, and this is part of the problem of people saying, "Oh, I just want horror to be escapist." I'm like. The things that we find monstrous are historically contingent, right? 
We, we, we exist in particular conditions which create monstrosity on a particular side, on a particular uh, group of people or persons or, or objects. And so this notion of like horror is, is escapist and should just be cathartic way of maintaining the ideological status quo. Uh, that's right, totally. Well, oh, go ahead, Brennan. I was going to say, uh, and you know, Bloom Productions is is an amazing example because I think you're right. The, their movies are, even though they're they're horror movies, they do try to have you know a little bit of that kind of social commentary in there, but it's almost performative because yeah. it they just have to kind of throw that in there because somebody recently asked. Uh, that bloom guy like you've directed or you've produced dozens and dozens of movies now how come a single movie hasn't been directed by a woman yes I saw and he this. was like well there's just no like good female <laughs> directors like they just don't exist so like we tried but we couldn't find any uh and it's just so laughable uh that he can't even you know commit to doing something like that uh which would seems like it would be pretty easy it would have almost happened by accident by now uh, and it's because it would necessitate kind of admitting the fact that horror is a political thing, right? Uh, it's a way of disavowing the politics within within the genre which is most profitable for you. I mean, that's why I think horror is so interesting to look at from a kind of Marxist point of view, because it has this really ambivalent uh, relationship to capitalism itself. It's like it's really it's really profitable for people like Jason Blum to, to produce horror movies. But at the same time, within the very kind of formal makeup of a horror film, there is the potential for a critique of the systems which generate so much money in the first place. Well, I think our, our friend John Levitt, who thank you again, John, for putting us in touch with the Lit Crit guy. Shout out uh, to John. A, an amazing piece of, of comradeship right there. Uh, I, I think John would chime in right now and point out what he always tells us, which is that Art is not revolutionary. It's merely a reflection of, of the society. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's necessary to find the ways in which art is useful from a revolutionary point of view or from a leftist point of view. Um, we don't exist in a kind of leftist hegemony where we can uh, naturally subordinate all art to a political end. So we kind of have to be willing to engage with stuff and that's why I think horror is so important because it's hugely popular uh, and it has within it the kind of potential to be turned to to what I think can be quite radical and interesting ends. Well, and I'd like to circle back around to that when we do our, our second segment when we start getting into uh, specific horror movies because I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Get Out is one that in particular sticks out in my mind as something that really raised, I think, a lot of awareness even among the annoying bougie white liberal class yeah. of of what of what the actual day-to-day -day horrors are of being a black person in America but before we do that i've been fascinated by uh your essay on your website which will uh link in the show description if i remember to do it which i never do um <laughs> But I can I can edit it in if I forget. Uh, you've been you've been writing on your blog this essay towards a gothic Marxism. Yes. And and I've been it, I I one strand of that uh, that I thought was really fascinating was the idea of the witch and how the witch as a as a cultural signifier became a monster around the time of the rise of capitalism and how it 
how it represented sort of the the unrepressed woman or the person living outside of the society. And I was hoping that you could go into that for us a little bit more. Well, uh, absolutely, because this comes from this comes from maybe one of the best uh, works of Marxist feminism, which is Sylvia Frederici's genuinely incredible historical study called Caliban and the Witch, uh, which if you have never read, I cannot recommend enough. Read Caliban and the Witch. Um, and the point is that it's sort of historical. It's a historical study that kind of says that in the emergence of capital as a kind of concrete economic form, what was required was a new kind of subject, right? So you require a sort of laboring subject, this emerging mercantile bourgeoisie requires people who are actually going to work and make the stuff that they want to sell. Um, and there are these various disciplinary um, forces within society. Um, Frederici writes about things like the church and the state, um, which are willing to kind of enact violent discipline upon a mass population in order to uh, basically get what they want. Um, and the witch, uh, the figure of the witch, this sort of uh, uncontrollable or ungovernable woman who has access to a certain kind of power that is not dependent upon labor power to get what you want. Uh, she can satisfy. Well, and, and also, and also deeply rooted in uh, local traditions and folklore, which is something that capitalism tries to flatten out as uh, much as possible. Oh, absolutely. Um, need uh, doesn't need people in order to get what it, what she needs she can help you meet your material needs as well without without having to go and work for a subsistence wage uh, in a shitty factory job and so the figure of the witch is dangerous you know she's she's rooted in local community access to an old form of knowledge uh, a kind of power that is not quantifiable under capitalist means and Frederici sees that as the kind of root of this centuries-long exercise of male power against against women uh, which comes from as I say, uh, I can't recommend Caliban and the Witch uh, enough. It's a kind of classic of feminist Marxism. Uh, but it is also a really good sign and a really good point at which to kind of begin thinking about uh, Marxism and horror more generally. How does one go about doing that? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've been talking about Gothic Marxism for a little while on uh, on the internet uh, now. And... Um, like a gothic Marxism is not a particular tendency. It isn't a particular uh, uh, part of uh, something like DSA, although that would be absolutely rad as hell. <laughs> uh, well, all, all online leftists already joke about their goth girlfriends, so yeah. it would fit right in. <laughs> um, but a, a gothic <laughs> Marxism is a way, because one of the kind of traditional problems of Marxism as a form of cultural analysis is that like, it tended to see mass cultural forms either as like superstitions that you needed to get rid of or just kind of trash, really. And my point, which you know, has been made before by quite a few other writers, is that like these mass forms of media are not superstitions to be uh, dispelled or kind of low forms to be ignored, but actually contain really interesting insights into the kind of collective cultural unconscious of a particular moment. Marxism is very good at analyzing historical uh, and material forces, but we tend to be on less kind of confident ground when we are thinking about like the 
psychological and psychic unconscious of a particular cultural moment. And that's where a kind of Gothic Marxism is really useful. You know, and that's that's an interesting point, too, because I'm I'm kind of reviewing some of the other movies that I hope we talk about more in depth in the second half. But I'm thinking about how under uh, our current commodified structure, um, there are certain things in even older horror films like They Live mm. that are still completely relevant right now. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Because, because that system because that system has ossified and it served the, the function of commodifying anything that it can't squash. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that people like Mark Fisher have written about. They're really what we what we've seen since like the uh 1980s maybe even a little bit longer is is not anything radically new there's been no break of capitalism there's just been a, an acceleration and an intensification of pre-existing tendencies so right i mean i would argue t- today is even more 80s than the 80s because <laughs> donald trump is the president like we have out 80s the 80s even in the 80s that was like the Back to the Future 2 joke where it's like, wouldn't it be crazy, you know, if in the future some megalomaniacal 80s bully, you know, was running America. Right. That was used as comedy in the 80s. And now it's our actual literal reality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Fisher talks about this in the sense of like cancelled future. You know, back in, I don't know, maybe the 60s and 70s, there was still this idea that there could be a kind of utopian future, that things would be radically different. Um, but like, as you say... We have managed to out 80s the 1980s. You know, you've got you've got like Reagan on steroids as the president. Uh, like, not even a movie star. He, he made his name in reality television. Right, right. Yeah, it's a it's a Black Mirror episode. Oh, oh yeah, totally. So no wonder that Carpenter, <laughs> that great anti-capitalist filmmaker of the 1980s, is black again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and uh, before we take our break. It's it's occurring to me, um, as you were saying, as as both of you have said in various ways as we've been discussing this, that there are certain ways in which the horror genre does not actually want to look at uh, the the guts of the society it's in. Mm. Um, I think it's remarkable that so far the only movies that are really about climate change have been big budget spectacle movies and not horror films. Uh, yeah, especially from the work of people like Roland Emmerich. Um, but right. what's interesting is, you know, uh, a few years ago, you had that adaptation of the Cormac McCarthy book, The Road, um, which now seems kind of eerily prescient and eerily prophetic. And one of the emerging um, horrors that we're going to see a lot more of in the next 10 years is the horrors of the Anthropocene, the horrors of this of this world once again becoming a kind of hostile space. And, mm-hmm. incre- and what you're going to have is the economics of that are going to become even more explicit because previously it used to be that, it, let's say that you were a farmer and you left the settlement um, environs, you'd go out into nature and it would be this weird, enchanted, terrifying and hostile place. Now it's going to be, if you aren't rich enough, you're going to be forced out into that hostile space. If, sure. if you aren't economically secure enough to protect yourself from the realities of what we've done to the planet, then uh, Mad Max Fury Road, basically. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and and even then, even if you do have the resources to protect yourself from what's coming, uh, there's still the chance that you're going to be overwhelmed by tides of people yeah. who want to devour you for you know which uh maybe maybe i'm wrong maybe the the success of things like 28 days later and dawn of the the dawn of the dead remake and the the walking dead um maybe that is tapping into a, a subconscious uh fear of we know that when the oceans start to rise people have to go somewhere yeah but wait, Matt, I think you forgot about M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening. Oh, that's right. When the plants get mad and, and murder everyone with, with poisons or something I like mean, that. I mean, let's be honest. We sort of, like, this is the thing about contemporary horror that is like, we know we deserve it. Like, there's an awareness of our complicity, especially in, in things like uh, systemic climate change, in uh, systems of racialized violence and oppression. Um, you know, there's an awareness that uh, there's a last year, Stephen King put out a book with um, his son called Sleeping Beauties, which I'm just in the process of writing a paper about, uh, which is about the fact that a lot of men kind of know that there is a complicity in the violence uh, that's inflicted upon women. And if women were to decide to get their revenge on mass, hmm. we sort of know that we we kind of have it coming. So I think what's really interesting is the emergence of this awareness of complicity um, that we increasingly won't be able to disavow. I mean, the older horror movies, you go, oh, it's just a story. It's um, it's just yeah, it's just it's just Gill Man coming up out of the swamp and you know stealing. Oh man, there's a lot of racial stuff in there too. Yeah, all right, <laughs> yeah. bad example, bad example. Uh, but but like increasingly, you know, we won't be able to disavow our own involvement in the systems that produce this uh, horror. And we kind of have to reckon with that. You heard it here first, listeners. Uh, in the future, we're all going to be Calvinists. <laughs> That's a really American let's, let's... thing as well, right? <laughs> you all know that you're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> let's take a short break there. We'll come back and I, I want to dig more into uh, this thread that I started today uh, that, that John was kind enough to retweet. What's the best leftist horror film? We'll be back in a few minutes. commentary and you know what's the most uh what, what how did you phrase yeah the the tweet was prompter? just name the most leftist horror movies go yeah well I, the what first sprang to mind for me was it was a movie that i watched recently it's definitely not leftist 
but it is liberal. Uh, <laughs> we can do the leftist so analysis. I on recently, it. yeah, I recently had the the pleasure of watching Disney's Zombies, <laughs> which is a, uh, a a light horror themed movie for children about zombie cheerleaders, um, and it is the most thinly veiled social commentary that I've ever seen <laughs> where the zombies are literally just like black people. Oh, oh God. Um, wow. And wow. And so the, the, sto- the setup is like, Hey, there was a zombie outbreak, but now like we have, we cured the zombies and so they're better, but they're, they're still, still zombies and, and they just like, <laughs> yeah, they have like a, a bracelet that they wear that like keeps them from like zombieing out and so now they're just discriminated against and they live in the in the poor part of town. But they're going to have the first integrated high school. Oh, my where, God. Where zombies are there. What? Uh, <laughs> unreal. Know, but they, <laughs> they, they stick them, uh, you know, in the basement. And so the zombies have to fight for, you know, acceptance in a society that uh, that doesn't understand them and fears them. Uh, and they do throw through the power. Of cheerleading. What? what? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. If you, if, if to the people listening, if you would like to see this story, but done well and uh, not as a high school musical, uh, please check out the BBC series In the Flesh, uh, which is about somebody going home after suffering what they call PDS or partially deceased syndrome <laughs> uh, where the where the former zombies are kept heavily medicated by powerful pharmaceutical companies and are made to work in menial uh, community service or labor uh, jobs in order to make uh, amends and reparations for the things they did whilst they were uh, experiencing their syndrome uh right they they I probably don't they like uh, a high school musical yeah they don't they don't like loud noises like gunfire and things like that a lot of them probably end up homeless um oh, that is that is unbelievable that yeah. that's... but yeah it, it it shocked me that it was so that it was just so on the nose uh you know there was no subtlety about it um, they literally put them it in also shackles was, of course right (laughs) but yeah uh yeah i I think to to be um for for another example i recently rewatched jaws and i was surprised at how political that film was as well uh the entire first half of the movie is really all about political squabbles and you know, they're going to the government. They're saying, hey, you need to take care of this problem. Like, this is a huge problem. You need to shut it down. And then the government people keep saying, well, but that's when we make yeah. all of our money. Well, Brendan, what do you mean? We can't, we can't do it. People are going to die. You know, you're just being hysterical. And that was pretty amazing to me as well. And I could just see if that movie came out today, you know, all of the the conservatives would hate it and just be like, oh, this is so preachy. Right. And, you know. Uh, it's it, it was amazing for me to see that it was just accepted as well as, as we movie. know amity means friendship um but no that's that's a that's a really interesting point and uh to bring in a movie that isn't classically a horror movie but does contain horror elements um that's exactly what was going on in ghostbusters uh yeah yeah i i was on another podcast called death sentence and they asked me about ghostbusters and it turned out I had some very strong feelings about it. But, uh, 
the, the Ghostbusters are essentially privatized cops. Sure. Um, that they they are these Reaganite bourgeois private cops who are setting out to incarcerate members of the spiritual realm. Uh, and we should not be, we should not endorse that. Right. No, they're they're perfect libertarians. Literally, the main bad guy, other than Gozer in that movie, is the EPA. <laughs> and he and he's right. And he's right. As well. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, uh, down with the Ghostbusters. Generally, is is my line on this. <laughs> it's it's a perfect comedy movie, but do not try to pull your politics from it. Uh, if you base your politics on Ghostbusters, uh, you're a cop. Uh, <laughs> at least the at least the annoying Harry Potter people know who the bad guys are. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I had some amazing responses to this this tweet that I made. Um, just tons of people chiming in and and arguing, not not arguing, but suggesting, and and in some cases interpreting things that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being leftist. Um, obviously, the very first response in the thread was "They live," which I had the mm-hmm. pleasure to watch for the first time the other night. Uh, even though I, I've known what that movie is and basically everything about it for years. Um, but uh, we mentioned in the first half, uh, I don't think They Live is necessarily really revolutionary uh, in the sense that everybody kind of knows that's what's going on. It's a very thinly veiled metaphor for you're being bombarded with uh, imagery and propaganda constantly to just kind of uh, like obey the world. Um, But we also brought up Get Out, which Mm -hmm. had such a cultural splash because I think for the first time you had horror that was written basically by black people in America for black people in America that implicated the white supremacist power structure of America. Um, And I I don't know. I, I feel like that opened some eyes, but I'm open to disagreements. Uh, no, totally. I think I think Get Out is a really uh, interesting example of a kind of long-running um, thing in horror, which is about the implication of its assumed of the assumed kind of white audience member. Um, I mean, Jordan Peele has, has said that this is this is about those the people who would self-describe as being good Obama-era liberals are exactly the people <laughs> right. that this is about. <laughs> Well, and and the casting of uh, oh man, was it Bradley Whitford, who was everyone's yeah. favorite character on The West Wing, was a masterstroke. Incredible casting, incredible casting. But it's, I mean, in a way, you can kind of connect it back to the very end, to the very end of um, Romero's Dawn of the Dead, where you see uh, a, a black man shot to death by the police because he's mistaken for one of the zombies. Right. Not uh, to not to not to try to correct our expert, but that's actually Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and that's that's sort of a, can, a canonical text in the development of the modern uh, horror film. And so there is this there is this kind of tradition, and, and I'm so excited to see what Jordan Peele does next uh, of making what are actually pretty important and in some ways quite radical political points through something seemingly as kind of disposable and generic as the horror movie right well and you have uh to to add to that not 
necessarily a horror movie, but uh, Boots Riley is, um, what's it, uh, sorry, sorry for Bothering You. Yeah, Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You. Yeah. In the UK, hopefully we'll be here before the end of the year. Bring Sorry to Bother You to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, I know you have thoughts about Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, I mean, that was actually, I can remember very distinctly my first experience watching that movie um and i think it was it was maybe the first movie i had seen with like a sad ending mm. and it made me really right. <laughs> really mad <laughs> like i was so mad uh at that movie for having a depressing ending because in so many ways most uh, horror movies especially american horror movies i think they still have even though it's a horror movie they still have a happy That's, ending yeah, where the triumphalism of of kind of right getting over something most most people die, but they're then your hero, you know, or one hero or two, you know, he he survives and he rescues the girl and then they go like, right. whoa, that was crazy. <laughs> Whew, see you next year. Um, and so to actually see a movie, you know, subvert that um, and then with a, you know, with such a brazen, you know, message just at the end being like, you know who the real monster is, right. racism. Yeah. It, mean, was, uh, it was quite eye-opening as a, as a teen. Yeah. If you're a person of color in, in America, what's more dangerous, zombies or the cops? It's yeah, like, yeah, right. The answer, the answer is pretty clear. You know, and uh, I, I think that movie also did some, some other radical things that people may not uh, notice on first glance, like the fact that, it's the black guy who kind of takes charge of the group and keeps them all alive to the extent of literally slapping a white woman when she becomes hysterical, mm-hmm. um, which would, mm-hmm. would have, you know, uh, like we see at the end. Yeah, it, it, works. it works, except he still gets killed at the cops at the end. So did it? Wow, that's some that's some food for thought there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Zen code. Well, there were there were a bunch of other great suggestions in this thread. Um, people were bringing up Cronenberg, uh, and uh, I, I immediately went to, I think the one that most people know because of the hilarious head-exploding gif uh, from Scanners, <laughs> um, but I wanted to bring up Videodrome into this mm. um, as a... It's, it's very much a, a they-live sort of story that there's this secret power structure, except in this one, it's explicitly just media companies um, taking power for themselves. There's no outside alien doing this. Um, you know, you watch this video and it turns you into a living VCR that people can put things into you that program you into into behaving certain ways. I mean, Cronenberg was so ahead of his time, really, because if anything, um, that's that it has only accelerated, right? That's only intensified. Subjectivity has been sort of raised and overwritten in a kind of internet age. Um, Jameson was writing back in the back in the seventies and eighties that the, the era of like big metaphors, like metaphors, like psychoanalysis, was coming to an end. So really, it's not a surprise that the internet would produce a subjectivity that's essentially like pure image that can just be completely overwritten. That you become kind of a blank slate, a bit, a bit of kind of uh, marketable flesh. Right. Well, uh, that's that's interesting, uh, given the rise of the meme of the NPC on the right, um, where that's literally what they're talking about, basically the philosophical zombie 
uh, that they see, mm. you know, the right, the right thinks that everyone on the left is this, this empty husk that just repeats pre-programmed phrases, um, which is pretty rich coming from them, honestly, but, uh, but I, right. You know, it's, it's the right wing that's always, ab- you know, against like, uh, expression, yeah, orthodoxy, arts, dance, yeah, sure. uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, so, you know, it honestly, is pretty ironic. Uh, the NPC meme is just fascinating to see this. Uh, the idea of kind of the creation of a monster is an exercise in projection. Uh, because <laughs> <Right>. really, <laughs> they know, they know that they have no original thought, that they have no, because the whole point is that uh, conservatism is, is necessarily about what has come before, right? There is no chance for anything new within uh, the logical endpoint of conservative ideology. So all you can do is intensify. All you can do is accelerate what's what's pre-existing. You can't you can't have something like uh, the creation of something new because that involves an artistic risk that ideologically they're just not capable of taking. Right. Uh, well, and the 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 structure of capitalism is that such that your ideal role for the citizenry is you get up, you go yeah. to work. You come home, you, you don't really do anything else. I mean, any, if you do anything else, you know, you're not contributing because if you're not making money on it, then it's a waste of your yeah, time. Totally. So the the idea that they would, you know, criticize people is like, oh, you're just a robot. Uh, you're just a cog in the machine uh, is pretty rich coming <laughs> from someone who supports that system. Well, and John, you you talk about this in your essay on uh, on Marxism and horror and gothic horror about how um, a, a, so much of our horror is about like the ghosts of the past and trying to suppress them. And maybe what we need to do is not try to suppress them or get over them, but instead sort of carry them forward into the future, uh, recognize yeah. that that's part of our, our cultural DNA at this point and, and work with it on a current standing instead of this hearkening back to traditionalism or ossified culture. Yeah, I mean, you can't, there's this uh, tendency to sort of see things uh, either as irreparable, uh, possibly utopian, or like harkening back to a sort of pre-millennial fall somewhere. Um, Both of them, I think, tend to be quite American tendencies. And really, the only way of dealing with um, horror is the only way that you can deal with history, uh, which, you know, Jameson writes about this at the beginning of his book on postmodernism his other book on uh, narrative as a socially symbolic act but the only way that you can really make sense of kind of the stories that are passed down to us is through uh, Marxism's dialectical materialism and its approach to history because we don't try and kind of solve the problems of the past but we do try and kind of weave them into the ways that we deal with the right. which will inevitably inform how we deal with uh, the future and there was an interesting thread of discussion in this uh, under this post um, where somebody pointed out that really almost all dystopian present or future fiction um, is inherently leftist already um, mm. because yeah. because of the way that it's looking at the material circumstances that people are living under now or in the you know, the what's that trope? It's like next Tuesday, A.D., you know, just just yeah, slightly yeah. in the future. Um, so anything from uh, like Children of Men to the movie adaptation of 1984 to um, like 12 Monkeys can all be analyzed under that lens 
Um, and in a certain sense, all dystopian uh, future fiction is a horror film. I mean, in a way, yeah, because like traditionally Marxism has been much more comfortable talking about science fiction, talking about um, the possible future, because that depends upon a kind of cognitive engagement with history. Um, and one of the interesting things about the Gothic and horror is that that can kind of bypass the cognitive part of who we are, right? It can it can gets us on a kind of effective. One of my one of my uh, friends, one of my colleagues, has written a book talking about horror as like an effective genre. It does stuff to you like bodily. It kind of has this non-cognitive impact upon you, right? And I think sometimes like us leftists tend to go oh well if it doesn't like it, it immediately hit my brain then it isn't it isn't doing anything that's interesting or important but i think one of the things that makes dystopia so important is that it has those elements which sort of the, the scene for example with winston in room 101 uh where you kind of get that insight into his fears of rats e- eating through his cheek and right. tearing out his tongue like that does things to you which are not quantifiable just like cognitive interesting phenomena they kind of reach you on a sort of visceral level and that's why horror can be so impactful so important yeah sure it 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 stimulates that that amygdala excuse me it stimulates that amygdala reaction it's the the crocodile brain like fight or flight stuff and uh to go back to cronenberg for a minute I think that's why body horror is so interesting and has become, yeah. I think, even more fascinating to people as we've gone along because we have we have societal malaise and it may be the same or getting worse, but everybody has that that creepy crawly feeling, the heebie-jeebies about um, something going wrong with your body. And Cronenberg tapped into that way earlier than anyone else did. I mean, that's why the Saw yeah. movies are so effective because... Right. Well, and I think in in so many ways, that is why it's like the great equalizer, right? Everybody is in a body. Everybody is going to be facing, you know, death or, you know, failing health at some point. So it's able to tap into something universal, you know, regardless of race or class or upbringing. You know, this is a universal thing that everybody is going to be able to relate to. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and that's the thing that uh, makes me quite suspicious of like, the, the post-humanists, you know, those who think that really what we need to do is escape our bodies, escape right. our physical things. Um And that's something that um, I was thinking, especially of something like uh, The Fly with Jeff Goldblum is a really good example of the fact that the desperation to escape the grounds of possibility for being, which is having a body, the, the, the desire to sort of get beyond that is going to cause fresh horrors. You know, and that's going to cause new ways of like experiencing the contingency and fragility of what it means to be human. But also, that's the grounds upon which you can start to build what could be like a a, a kind of biological solidarity. The the kind of material fact that we all have bodies, that we all have this kind of shared vulnerability. I mean, the fly is all about trying to get beyond that and thinking that the the body is kind of perfectible and completely correctable. Right. Well, literally his whole reason for inventing the the teleporter in the the Cronenberg remake of the fly is he gets really car sick. That's, that's, that's (laughs) the problem he's trying to solve. And who can't, who can't identify with that? We have these kind of 
messy, fallible, contingent, uh, meaty parts. Uh, and and we, we want to desperately escape them, but in that desire to escape is not necessarily the most uh, positive thing because it can kind of give rise to its own horror. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, somebody else in the thread mentioned uh, the the old uh, black and white movie Freaks, um, because oh, and amazing. I, I think that's so relevant to this discussion because in that movie the the people who you would ordinarily consider to be the movie monsters end up being mm. these sort of strong and beautiful characters by the end, mm-hmm. whereas it's it's everybody else with sort of the normal. Uh, functioning ability um, who are who are the real monsters and there's a there's a really interesting demarcation line there where it's 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 body horror on one hand but it's also inward looking in a way that uh, uh, a movie like I don't know basket case about the the conjoined twins and the the one twin like can separate from the body and goes and kills people um, mm. that 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 doesn't achieve because in that it's just like the deformity is the monster, whereas in Freaks, mm-hmm. it turns out that there's there's a lot more going on there. Yeah, that drive the kind of normal, whatever you might take that to mean, actually involves a certain because that that depends upon its conditions of possibility is that there would be people who sit outside of those boundaries, right? You create a boundary of that that is acceptable, and you are. Uh, automatically excluding huge swathes of of, of of other humans who suddenly become other, who suddenly become kind of monstrous. Right, and sometimes they sometimes they yeah, turn into and, werewolves. It, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. But no, I think it, it's interesting to think that you know so much of American horror is based on you know the horror of the other, the horror of new experiences. Um, and so little of it about introspection, about reckoning with the horrors of the past. Um, you know, I think if there were a cultural shift in the types of horror stories that were being consumed, it could have, you know, an effect on, you know, the way people think about those problems, because there's so much of our current politics that is fear driven. Mm. And I think people are primed for these types of fears, these, you know, easy, reactive, instinctual fears to fear the others, fear the invaders, the outsiders, where the real threats are much more abstract. Right. Well, uh, John Levin and I discussed briefly uh, the invasion of the body snatchers, both the original and the remake, and how uh, particularly he pointed out uh, that in the remake... Or, sorry, with the original, uh, they asked the the two main characters what the movie was about, and they gave wildly different answers. One of them said it was about uh, the the creeping spread of communism. The other one said that it was about like Madison Avenue sort of advertisement and and consumption culture. Uh, and I, I think mm-hmm. that's amazing because both of them recognized a thing that, like you said, Brendan, was this sort of incohate uh, fear. But they had wildly different uh, political positions that they were approaching that from. This sort of reminds me of something that um, the great British uh, China Mieville said in uh, Mm. an interview about his book, The City and the City. When somebody asked him if it was an an analogy for uh, X place, 
you know, is this is this actually set in this place? Right. He said, analogy is far less interesting than metaphor. Because <laughs> with metaphor and horror depends upon metaphors is that within metaphor there is a kind of excess of meaning that can't be contained in a strict analogical mapping you know you can't say that invasion of the body snatchers is about this x thing you know it isn't just about uh, the creeping spread of communism or the or the proliferation of madison avenue consumerism because within the text there's this excess of meaning that gets mapped onto kind of both of those inchoate systemic fears. And so it's one of the reasons why horror is not intrinsically swing or progressive, right? Because that inchoate fear can be channeled and directed by certain groups, which is one one of the reasons why I think we kind of have to intervene on the critical uh, level into cultural debates and actually point to those inchoate fears that we think are most uh, pressing and most urgent from a left-wing point of view. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we saw that, um, what was that, a couple of months ago when the uh, the kid in Texas got his MAGA hat snatched off him by, uh, yep. by, by a black dude who was really pissed at them. And that was the, you know, the hat snatching was the part that everybody focused on, not the part where the kid was literally sitting in the booth at Whataburger talking about how great the purge was and how he'd love it if they brought the purge back because of all of the people that he could, he could take out, you know, uh, explicitly against what I think the political message of those movies is supposed to be. Um, but yeah. he was able to interpret that in his own way. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a really good point that, um, if it, we're writing these stories and maybe sometimes kind of dancing around what the real point is, but in terms of organizing, we have to figure out what that point is and bring that to people. We have to come to them on that level, not the metaphorical yeah. one. Yeah. Um, I just, I just think that, that, you know, metaphors are incredibly useful, but only up to a point because they demand explication. They demand sort of application as well. Because so many people will just go and see a horror movie like The Purge and go, oh, well, it's just a story. And you go, well, yeah, it is. But at the same time, this is a story that directly uh, feeds into the contemporary political conditions in some way. Right. You wouldn't be sitting here enjoying it if it didn't speak to something that you knew already, uh, maybe just Precisely. on a gut level. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Well, I don't know if we can if we can get any better than that. Um, the Lit Crit guy, John, thank you so much. This has been an amazing discussion. I am so, so glad uh, to have joined you, and it's been an absolute blast. Oh, that's great. Uh, what a what an amazing way to round out our, our Spooktober episodes. Um, <laughs> talk about what all of this means and instead of just what we like about it. Quite right. That's what I'm for. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Brendan, thank you for um, you know making the time for this also. I know that uh, your family had to kind of rearrange a little bit. Yeah, no, they're seeing uh, Hotel oh, nice. Transylvania 3, so <laughs> they're really, we're going to have a great in-depth discussion, you know, about, uh, you know, what it says about uh, cr- Carnival Cruise culture uh, and how it clashes with traditional Transylvanianism. <laughs> Radicalization starts at home, y'all. 
quite right. <laughs> uh, well, John, please feel free to plug whatever you would like. Uh, absolutely. You can find me on uh, Twitter at the Licorice Guy and the Licorice I have just finished writing a guide, the first three chapters of Marx's Capital Volume One, which is the bit that everybody tries to read and then get stuck. <laughs> uh, and I've just finished a guide to Jameson's book on postmodernism, the cultural logic of like capitalism, which uh, you can buy from me. And I think that's pretty much everything I have to plug. Uh, that's great. That's that's amazing amounts of plugs. All we have is our Twitter accounts. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Brendan Williams with And I am L. Matthew Hodges. I am on Twitter at Matt the Great. With the W, you can follow the show, of course, at liquid underscore flannel on Twitter. Like us on iTunes. Do all of those things. It's great. Um, I hope everybody has a very happy and very spooky Halloween. This whole month has been a blast. Yeah, next month, all uh, food yep. preparation. Yeah, food. We're, <laughs> we're going right. to turn into a GIF recipe podcast. Um <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, after that, it's going to be just Christmas music. We're just going to play Christmas music for the entire episodes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're like that that one radio station that just turns it off <laughs> <Right>. uh, in, <laughs> after October. It just says, like, we'll see you next well, year. If that's not a scary enough thought for you, then you're just not having fun on Halloween. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, John. <laughs> Thank you.